Coming to you from Cape Town, I'm Nancy Richards, Rob Parkin here with me in Johannesburg with Sulu Falopalo and Phineas Ntoba. And don't forget, if you want to be part of the show, you can do that. What you have to do is uh, give us a call on 0892 10 2010, 0892-102010. Or you can send us a message on our Facebook page, which is SAFM Literature. Have a look and like it. Well, let me tell you what we've got lined up, starting off, as always, with our hero item, which perhaps is more of an icon than a hero today. Because our first candidate is singer-musician PJ Powers, who, in her own words, is here. She wrote a book, a book of rise, recovery, realization, called I Am Here, together with writer Marianne Tam, who is with me in the studio. And I think the journey to here was actually quite a ride, and the journey of writing the book I am looking forward to hearing. So you'll be talking to them both just now. After that, in our text item, teaching children to read, write, communicate and calculate. Well, have we been missing something? That, uh, so asked Dr. Louis Benjamin, who's an early childhood development specialist, also a board member of the Thinking Schools of South Africa. And I think actually the way to get our children communicating and reading could be a whole lot easier than we think. We just have to talk to them. After the news at two, book two, some very wry comment from Daily Maverick columnist. He's Richard Poplack, a.k.a. Hannibal Elector, whose collection of adventures in the political jungle has just been published under the title Until Julius Comes. And what a read it certainly is. Get your hands on it if you can. Otherwise, just have a look at the Daily Maverick. Uh, look at them on their website. Bookshelf. In our bookshelf today, our reader with a title to trumpet about is Nana Ndwe, so we'll find out what she's reading and recommending. And don't forget, we're always interested to hear what you're reading, so if you would like to let us know, you can pop us a mail on books at safm.co.za or let us know on our Facebook page at SAFM Literature. Our story featured another in the BBC Changing World documentary series. And, uh, and after the news at three, by that time, it will be another from his story. That's Roger Webster bringing us a story. And it's a complete surprise. Don't know what it's going to be about. So we look forward to finding out after the news at three. And then our back page item, which takes us around to approximately 3.15. And this is where the design bit comes in with a gentleman by the name of Stephen Doyle, New York-based, internationally recognized creative director, who's coming to Cape Town for the Lurie's Creative Week, which is starting September the 19th. So we're going to get some thoughts from him about design in terms of books, type and text, because print is his speciality. So looking forward very much to that. And to close, as always... Sunday play. But just before we move on, just a couple of little footnotes here, and I'm sure that you've either seen or heard of them, but as this is a show about words, I really felt that I had to share this. Some of the new words that have made it into the Oxford Online Dictionary Quarterly Update, like clickbait, which means online content that's been designed especially to draw visitors to a page. There's also humble brag, which is a self-deprecating statement, the purpose really of which is to draw attention to yourself, of course. And then there's listicle, which is an article on the net, which is listed in bullet points. There's binge watch, which is, I think it's, it's a meaning to watch a whole bunch of episodes all in one go. And then pop culture has, needless to say, thrown in some new slang words like amazeballs, air punch, and spit take. Not sure about spit take. And they've also included a couple of acronyms such as SMH. Take a guess. Shaking my head. 
And there's Yo YOLO, which is Y-O-L-O, -O, which is you only live once. And there's also Yuck Neckbeard, and that's for when a guy hasn't done such a very good shaving job. There's also Pharmo Vigilance, presumably means you have to watch what you're intaking or ingesting. And uh, to which I say W-D-Y-T. What do you think? Well, there you go. And just another quick footnote, if I can, if you'll indulge me, also just to let you know that here on August the 30th, here in Cape Town, there's going to be another book dash. Well, a book dash, check it out. Have a look on the website. It's happening at the Central Library and themed for this Women's Month with the help of Rock Girl and the African Storybook Project. What they're going to be doing all in a very short space of time is writing no fewer than 10 biographies of inspiring women. Well, if you would like to know more, get along, go along there, get involved, do whatever. Check it out. It's book-dash.org, book-dash.org. And you are listening to SFM Literature. It's SFM Literature, and here we are. Well, Here I Am is uh, a very appropriate title, because we're going to start with our icon hero today. She's PJ Powers. She's singer, musician, star, whose name is kind of synonymous with the world in union. And I'm going to resist the, the, the temptation to sing along there, but also feel so strong amongst a whole lot of other indelibly South African songs. But she's also Tandeka, as she was named at the Jabalani Stadium, where she sang back in 1982, I think it was. But she's also Penelope Jane Dunlop, the chubby child who grew up determined that she was going to be a rock star, no matter what. Well, no matter what, I have to say it has been a hell of a journey of rock rebellion and reverence. And now that she's through possibly the, hopefully, the roughest patch of this roller coaster, we can safely say that here she is. Here I am, the title of the book that she's put together with, uh, together with the tenacious, very talented Marianne Tan writer who is with me here in the studio. And PJ herself we have on the phone. So, hi, Marianne. Lovely to have you. Good morning, Nancy. And, morning, um, morning, Penelope. Good morning, How are you? <laughs> How are you? I'm very, very well, thank you, Nancy. Good, good, good. Excellent. All the better for having read your book and knowing that now here you are, you've arrived. Um, yes, here I am, most certainly. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. PJ, I have, this I have arrived, and thanks to, to Marianne, it's all, it's all now down in a, in a, in book form that yeah. everybody can get a hold of. Yeah, I'm, I bet you hold it and and look at it and think, gosh, here I am. There's my life. That's, I mean, that's really quite staggering. But you know, a huge decision. <coughs> excuse me to make. To take on a book, you know, you've been through some, you know, incredible times. What was the trigger that made you think, right, got to write this down? Um, you know, I, very briefly, I woke up one morning and decided I wanted to write a book about my life because I have. I've had an extraordinary life. It's been filled with wonderful, I've met wonderful people. And, um, you know, my career was born at a time where it was just so uncool to be a white chick in the middle of Soweto in 1982. Um, and I was embraced by the people of South Africa, the black people of South Africa, and given the name Tandeka. And lots of extraordinary things have happened to me. Um, um, you know, I've had a, a, an amazing relationship, been privileged enough to have an incredible relationship with, with uh, Nelson Mandela. And um, I think that, uh, you know, some people say, why now? And I, uh, my answer to that is not what is normally what people say, which is why not, is because now is the right time. I don't think that the book would have had the gravitas. I have had um, a rough time. I've been sober for five years. I went through a very dark and uh, self, um, I mean, a destructive phase in my life. And I think that there are many facets. Um, one of them, of course, which is our country's history, that... Uh, um, 
that makes this book much more interesting than had I even attempted mm. to write it or thought about writing it 15 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Though it does, it's interesting to see cropping up again and again the parallels or the, what was going on at the time. It sort of contextualizes it right here in South Africa. But having made that decision that you wanted to write the book, were you prepared for how it would be to go back through it? Because you've done a fair bit of soul searching together with Marianne. It's, you've, dug, you've dug deep. Um, yeah, yeah I, uh, I wasn't prepared for Marianne Jam, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> I don't think anyone is, um, uh, if the truth be told. And I did not realize, no, that I was going to have to dig that deep. I think Marianne, in a very gentle, firm way, made me go to places that I didn't, in, in my wildest dreams, imagine that I would go to or would, would be prepared to go to. Yes, I bet. I um, bet. So those parts were difficult, but I, and I'm not just saying that because she's listening, but I was, I was privileged enough to have this extraordinary person who, who found um, my voice and we, we, we were the same age, came from the same political background. When I said boy patong, when I said church street to her, I didn't have to explain. Um, when I spoke about family to her, I didn't have to explain. Um, when I spoke about conflict and, and feeling left out and feeling like I didn't fit in I didn't have to explain so there were all of those wonderful serendipitous things that happened that, that made her absolutely 150% the correct person yeah. for me to write the book with. Yeah, those times when you were not feeling so strong, I'm sure there were many uh, so how did, it, how did the two of you come together, Marianne? How did, it, how did the connection get made? Um, Frederick uh, um, uh, called me from Penguin and, and uh, said I was up in Joburg for, for another event and said he wanted to take me out for supper and we went out for supper and he mentioned that, um, that PJ wanted to, to write her memoir and so we took it from there and then, uh, then PJ was in Cape Town performing with Percy Sledge and I drove out to the, the casino out there, out yonder I had to, you know <laughs> <laughs> and we met and, and, and it, I think it's important in our first meeting that you, that you understand someone and that they understand you because it's, it is going into uh, I suppose you are going to enter somebody's life in a particular way so you need to feel comfortable with them and, and I think we immediately kind of uh, liked each other and then and sort of then uh, I went back to Frederick and said sure I, I want to do this book definitely yeah. uh, once I'd met uh, Penelope I can't call her PJ now yeah I did in the beginning I've called her PJ a lot in the beginning but she is Penelope Penelope Jane actually um, <laughs> and uh, so that's how it kind of you know that's how it started yeah yeah, that it was quite a thing. Talking of the start, um, interesting to see that we don't actually start with young Penelope Jane and her sort of chubby little girl thing. We actually start with you, PJ, practically comatose, well, comatose on a bed, um, not having been out and seen the light of day, that you started at the very worst. You started at the bottom. Did you, did, did you make that decision that that was where you were going to open? I think that, um, I think that Marianne wrote a chapter... Um, it was it was a very difficult chapter that I knew that would have to be written in this book, and um, I must be perfectly honest. When I was sent the chapter, chapter, I just I burst out crying with relief, as well as how brilliantly it was written, um, because Marianne has captured in and you know I think that one must understand here that whilst we had a lot in common, the one thing we didn't have in common is that um, is that I, you know I I I'm an addict. I'm I'm a recovering alcoholic. Um, which is the furthest thing in, in, in the world from Marianne, you know, because she's so in control of everything, aren't you, Marianne? Mm. And, um, <laughs> and, um, 
so when when I saw how incredibly um, sensitively it had been approached, and also when I when I read what I, what I had done to myself, it was extremely um, um, it was extremely moving for me. And I must be honest, um, I think it was Marianne that made the call and said, "We we got to take it from here, so that people don't go on this journey of, you know, this little girl that." crashed and burned you know one doesn't want to do that it's quite mm. boring that format yeah so absolutely marianne where did you where did you begin i can't help feeling that there's been a huge amount of listening done here um and uh, pj you do acknowledge uh, was it yvonne who gave you the space um gave you the place where where the two of you could just we, sit we, and I, I, I listened in yeah. many, many different places i listened in cape town and i listened in johannesburg um um, I listened all over and and the decision to start with that particular chapter for me was because um, I think that in order to I, I thought to find yourself I couldn't understand there was one thing about about Penelope I didn't uh, understand or, or get or, or that, that's that self-destructive uh, uh, urge to get to that particular point I understand you know negative feelings and I understand self-destruction I understand needing to find oblivion I understand all of those on an existential level but to do so chemically and to risk your life to that point for me was extremely interesting and 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 painful and and I thought I needed to take readers right there in order to ask the question at the end how the hell did I get here because there's so much that has been lived beforehand and I thought it just in terms of the rhythm of the narrative and in terms of engaging the reader that we start at the low point and then move uh, into dif into different areas so the, and, and also just instinctively that's what came to me first uh, in terms of this needs to be there I don't know how to explain that to you but uh, in terms of just storytelling that to me was um, an extremely powerful point in someone's life I think we all get somewhere where we feel so alone, we don't know what to do, where we where we are despairing, where there seems to be no hope. Um, and I think it's a common universal feeling. And I thought I'd start there and then move on from there. Yeah. And the storytelling bit, PJ, they, or should I call you Penelope, how did it feel, you know, it, it feels like... I imagine that Marianne's got your voice. It feels very much like uh, like you speaking here. I mm -hmm. imagine. Um, did you did you literally just sort of sit down because it's, it's in chronological order? And I mean, we don't want to be dwelling on the low point because that's not there. There've been many many high no, listen, points. For, you for know, me, what was so wonderful was, valleys, was yeah. just discovering a life yes. that was. You know, I mean, what I loved about about uh, Penelope's life is that she just threw herself into it. She's got this extraordinary sort of. It's not ambition rather than willpower to do. Um, I identified with it also. Had Having been a young woman growing up in a particular time in the world where because of the gender you find yourself in, you're told you can't do things. And there's an uncompromising uh, mindset that says, bugger that, I am going to do it, you know. So it wasn't, the story wasn't told chronologically. I mm -hmm. think, you, you know, we woke up in, in, in the mornings and started talking at seven and <laughs> I can talk for a long <laughs> time. I was still talking to me while I was trying to make supper. Yeah, yes, so I, I don't stop, you know, I didn't stop. Yeah, the rhythm of it was just, I felt I needed, we needed to get momentum going and I needed to put Penelope into the uh, to the trajectory of the, of the narrative, but it jumped around a lot mm. as we sp stopped on a. I'll let you speak now, Pen. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it just one for me, one very beautiful moment because I had dealt with the death of my own father and coming to terms with one's perception of one's family is that Penelope had always felt that her father had been sort of slightly remote and distant with her and then she told me this beautiful beautiful story that when he died she found that he had taped everything that she'd even done on television and had lovingly labeled it and had lovingly filed it away and it was quite clear to me that he loved her a lot 
and perhaps that we don't know these things until we go back and see that no person uh, who does that doesn't absolutely isn't proud and absolutely loving of the of their child and I think for Penelope to go back and then reassess her relationship with her father was was and then we talked about that so you, so that mm-hmm. was the way we went back in there and I found that a really wonderful journey to into into restoring yourself uh, a restoration of self by being forced to stop and talk and reflect and go was that really what I what happened to me is that really what I should carry with me is that really what's going on inside me or is that just what I've assumed and um, and I could only have done that because of my own journey um, yeah. around that so I, I love those moments and they would lead into and other it sounds like there was of course, sort of those are the exact moments Nancy that you're talking about that mm. I never assumed that I would come out of this book with, um, I mean, I've come out of this book with a, with a, 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 a huge amount and um, a lot of self-knowledge. And, of course, that very, very sort of, that was very cathartic. Yeah. Um, but, you know, um, one of the, the wonderful things that I've come away with is that my dad did love me, you know, and that was an enormous revelation um, uh, to me. I knew that he sort of liked me and I was the last after six years and, and I mean he would have paid for me to go to school and paid for my food but um, you know we were we were removed that's how I felt and and now I know that that isn't what he felt at all it seems extraordinary I mean he loved you thousands of people loved you you sang in a stadium full of 60,000 people who all absolutely adored you um, and yet you seem to have had doubts about yourself you mentioned the self-knowledge and I was just wondering if going back over all this stuff you know all the early days when you know with with hotline with Mike Fuller all the all the things that you did right at the beginning going back over it must have helped you make sense of the whole thing I mean I, I've been trying to avoid the word cathartic but has it been sort of quite therapeutic helping you understand where you've come from well, I think more than more than it has a bit. What 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 it's what it's confirmed is that it's okay that I felt both things, you know, because because it was okay that um, which of course I was I I, I never felt um, I, you know I, I loathed myself physically as a child and then and then got a manager who was extremely good for me but also also loathed me physically, so you know it just exacerbated the situation, and I think that uh, what's happened is. I've, I've got to a point now where when I look back in the book, I think to myself, I can't help but be grateful that I wasn't born sort of one of these young ingenues that, that can rely just on their looks yeah. and their, um, and their, uh, you know, and, and, and all of that kind of, that, that type of stuff because I had to work from the inside out. So I had to, as a child, develop other parts of my personality, which I don't believe. Um, maybe perhaps wouldn't have been um, uh, developed had I gone through this, this start being this, this gorgeous, I think a lot of very, very beautiful people come out at the end of their careers feeling equally um, uh, with a lack of self-worth because they haven't developed the other parts of their personalities. They've just been seen as beautiful women. And um, I think that I, I was able to develop these other parts, which I'm extremely grateful for. So now, I no longer now I think it's quite funny that I looked the way I did and how, as Marianne said, absolutely determined that while people were telling me I'd never make it as a singer looking the way I was, um, it hurt. But what was a stronger emotion was that I'll prove you wrong. Yeah. 
Yeah, that seems to me the paradox that you were full of self-doubts. I mean, lots of lots of references to your weight and how you looked and how people responded. And there's a wonderful story about um, I can't remember what gig it was, but they gave you an outfit that you said was going to make you look like something absolutely dreadful. So instead, you wore a bright blue dress, and it was equally dreadful. But the, lots of issues around how you look and how you feel, and yet this mm. unbelievable driving determination that you were going to be a rock star right from the beginning. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, I uh, yes, I, I didn't fit into that mold, so I was determined to make a mold for myself. And I didn't want to be. Uh, successful. I wanted to be the best, and I wanted to be my best. You know, do the best that I could. And you know, the fact that they put me in a in a, a blue sequined blancmange for the Miss World when they came out here, um, you know, uh, just made me all the more determined to go flying into the to to the wardrobe department and tell them to change it. I didn't change it into much anything much better, but they did change it. However. There, there, there's so many stories in here, I'm not quite sure which ones to pick out on, but um, talking about how many people absolutely loved you, um, you know, a stadium full of people singing along with you, and one of the people who absolutely adored you was Madiba, was former President yes. Nelson Mandela, and there, I can't find it here in the book, but he wrote to you a wonderful letter as a result of you having written to him. Tell us about that exchange. Well, I was very, very angry, um, you know, as I went further and further from the 31st of May as I, my journey into the townships became more and more frequent and as I had less and less contact with with um, with white people in terms of concerts and, you know, I spent my life in the townships and um, I, I realized the wrongness of, of the situation and what really grieved me and peeved me um, was that um, he was so faceless and he was so, he was eradicated from our, our minds and our names, you know, our, fate, our, our memories, he just he wasn't allowed to be. And you must remember that when Nelson Mandela went to prison, I was a very, very young girl. And I'm not sure that I would have agreed with everything he was touting at that time. But my point was that I, the letter that I wrote him was, I may not agree with everything you stand for, but I'd like the opportunity to, to disagree mm -hmm. personally, because, or to, dis to be able to disagree. What I, what I resented was, was the state's intervention in making up my mind what I thought of this man. Um, and then he wrote back and he said, look, I'm sure any differences we have will be ironed out when we meet. And um, he wrote me this wonderful letter. Well, it's the first time that the, the letter's ever been published. I've never seen it fit. People have said, why haven't I published it before? Why haven't I shown people? Because it wasn't the right time. Mm. And now is the right time. And from the day he was released, from, you know, from when he asked to see me, in the October when I first met him after the February being released, we he always had my back, you know. He had my back when it, my career was in the doldrums and I did the rugby work. I don't give too much away, it's all yeah. in the book. But he, he stood by me and he held my back and I think he thought I was quite funny and I used to tell him I'm always rehearsing for his birthday on my birthday because we're the 16th yes, and the 18th yes. of July. Yes, which is lovely, and I think for for so many of his birthdays you sang, and you were mm. um, sort of privy to all sorts of inside stories. And and, and you're also, a, is the right expression, a paid-up member of the ANC? Oh, I became a um, member of the ANC in 1983, yeah. I was a card-carrying member in 1983, yes. Yeah. 
The Marianne, coming back to you, the thing about the book, and I and I sort of recognise that this might be your influence here, or maybe not, that there are so many references to what's going on in South Africa because it, you know there's no ways you could live a life like Penelope was leading without it being referenced in South Africa. Did you were you very conscious of saying okay? I mean, so for a, an overseas reader, for instance, or even for a lot of local people for whom they local more than anything, yeah, we, because we a lot you know, of us would forget to know where we are now. We've got to know mm. where we've been. Yeah, indeed. Well, I thought all of us, you know, are located in our time and our history, you know, and um, in, in, in Penelope's case, particularly, but I just want to say before I talk about that, what what, uh, um, what also worked for me in terms of working with Penelope is she's very funny and very articulate, uh, which she didn't think she was. And you can hear when she's speaking to you now that, uh, that she is. So it was very easy for me to find that voice because it is there. That's not my voice. That's her mm. voice. Mm. So um, just so people must be sure of that, that what you're hearing here, she's, that's what she says. That's how she, you know, so um, I felt um, you can't tell the story without the politics. Um, it would have been, it would have been floating in some sort of thin air, particularly because of where we come from. And I thought any opportunity I may get, uh, politics is my sport, politics is my life, politics of this country shaped me. And the other thing that Penelope and I share is we love this place. We love it. And we love South Africans. And if I, if yeah. I didn't find that, it would have been difficult. But um, I thought it would be really nice to, um, if younger people are going to read this, this book, to maybe introduce them to the politics through the music as a narrative. And if you look at, there's a wonderful chapter called Driving and Pentechnic and Through the Revolution. Yes. And if you look at the kind of music that was played in the townships in the 1980s, that's when Bubblegum was born. And it's quite significant that that's when, you know, uh, Brenda and, and Yvonne Shaka Shaka singing, I fell in love with the DJ, I'm your weekend special. The lyrics and the songs are all there to make people take them away from the horror that's surrounding them. So I think those little insights are, are quite interesting about the development of music at the time. I'm, I love music. I can't live without it. I, would you know be bereft if I didn't? So I, you know, looking at, at, at how PJ writes, what she writes, uh, you know, where she performed. Um, do I, is everyone here the echo? Yes, is it yes, just that's me? right. Um, I thought I'm going mad. Um, uh, so, so all of those things were, you know, I took into account when I wrote that because we don't exist in isolation of our circumstances and of the history and any opportunity for me to write about politics, um, I take. But right now you're listening to SAFM Literature and we're talking to PJ Powers who together with Marianne Tam who's with me in the Cape Town studio has produced a book called Here I Am, very proudly Here I Am, I just, I love that title PJ um, just want to come back to um, Do you want to know where the title comes from? Yes. And how we got the title? Yes. Well I'd written a song called Flying about mm. coming out of this dark period Which you, perform say, wait, wait, which you are performing yeah. on your show Firefly at the, at the Civic Theatre Where are you performing? Johannesburg Theatre very soon you're performing oh, your, yes, yes. yes. Yeah, Firefly, which <laughs> thank is you a, for that. which is, thank you, thanks, Marianne. Um, uh, Firefly is a, is a, basically it's like a synopsis of the book, mm. but it's told through music and some quite very funny um, anecdotes. And it starts at the Civic, well, the, the Johannesburg Theatre at the Fringe on the 17th of September, and it runs for 10 shows only until the 28th of September. So how did we get the title? How did it get the title? Was um, Marianne came, I think, to rehearsals or something? No, I was, listening, I was listening to your music you listening, at home. Were you listening? <laughs> were you? Okay. So I don't know. But anyway, so um, uh, I wrote a song called Flying, and the opening verse is she just came in from the darkness, banged down the door, and said, Here I am. 
Mm. And Marianne went, there's the title. Oh, so that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty much how it came about. Well spotted, Marianne. Lovely, lovely title. And uh, once again, Firefly Johannesburg Theatre is going, Firefly is going to be on at the Johannesburg Theatre from September the 17th to the 28th. Just a few performances, so make sure you get there. You know, the other thing you mentioned, uh, somebody mentioned Yvonne Shaka Shaka there. The other thing about the book is that it's a really interesting expose if that's too i'm not sure if that's the right word but it's sort of an exposure on the rock industry on how mm -hmm. it is on how it isn't how there can be sort of dark devious things a lot of money changing hands not changing hands necessarily um relationships between other band members and that a wonderful story about i can't remember again which gig it was but um you're also there are lots of you all supposed to be up there on stage and yvonne shaka shaka wouldn't get out of bed until she'd been paid um which for you was a bit of an eye-opener Yes, um, you know, I, uh, I was terrified. We were in Uganda and right up north near the Sudan border. And I was doing, we were doing a double bill. And, you know, in in Africa, the rule is you don't leave the country, never mind the bed. You don't leave South Africa until you've been paid in cash. And we went because we'd had we'd most of the money. And basically what happened was, uh, I said, come on, Yvonne, we must go to the show. She said, no, we haven't been paid in full. So I said, well, there are 30,000 people in the stadium. And there's, I, I was always too nervous stick to my guns in this situation um, not for no other reason that I was always nervous that somebody would get hurt and uh, in a riot situation if we didn't pitch but you know Yvonne I get off to her she, she stuck to her guns and sure as hell the promoter somehow found these bags and bags and bags of Ugandan shillings which came you know roaring through to our bedrooms in I mean when I talk bags and bags about 20 shopping bags full of Ugandan <laughs> shillings um, which we sat and counted through and then sorted on stage <laughs> It's extraordinary, as you say. Well, well, never mind giving too much away because there's plenty in the book for that. We, we we've only scratched the surface here. Um, but I'm just thinking. At one point, you had a stroke. I'm just wondering where the down yeah. downward spiral spiral actually started because we all of us. I mean, I say we all of us rather magnanimously, but most South Africans are old enough to remember. I have this vision of you singing um, "The World in Union," uh, you know. And uh, how were you then? When did things start to go slippery? Things had started from a career point of view to, um, you know, it's a very, very, it's a, you show business and, you know, one minute you're here, one minute you're there. And um, um, one minute you're up, one minute you're down. And I was going through one of my down periods um, just before World and Union where my self-doubt was at a, probably um, one of its all-time highs. You know, it's kind of like a graph goes up and down and um, as I said and that's when Mandela insisted that I did that and that you know drop kicked me right back to where I thought I belonged um, but the, the the uncomfortableness with myself you know when I when I look back I, and, and still when I read the book and I, I get this feeling when did it actually start you know and I can't sort of say you know on 23rd of April yeah. 19 blah 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 I woke up I decided this is what I'm going to do I'm going to find an escape in a bottle no it didn't happen like that it was this gradual horrible you know they they talk about uh, alcohol being coming baffling and powerful and that's exactly what it is it um it sneaks up behind you you know and it will follow you like a serpent wherever you walk and it will it will wait while you have three months of i'm not going to drink because i'm on diet or i'm not going to drink because i'm doing this show or that but it will follow you as I say, I think it's a very descriptive, like a serpent, until eventually 
it can. It'll, it, and once it's got you, you're, it's over, you know. Yeah. So let's if not, you are predisposed to the disease, I suppose. Yeah, you know. yeah. Well, you know, I mean, hey, it's, I don't want anybody it's to start there. throwing their wine glasses around at their Sunday lunch. Yes. Know. And I think everybody's very judgmental until they've been there themselves and then they mm. learn a thing or two. Just lastly, um, you know, I'm just wondering, lots of people who loved you, you've had some wonderful relationships. Um, it's, you know, they're people who, who really adore you. And yet it's quite a lonely place to be, uh, to be a star. Do, do, you, do you still feel that? I mean, is it, is it really at the end of the day, it's just you and your voice? I think that, yes, I think to a degree, it's where I feel the most private and where I feel the most um, um, uncontactable is when I'm on stage singing, uh, which I know that people may think is quite a bizarre statement, but that's where I really am not, you know, that's my most private moment is when I'm on stage. And, you know, I don't want to bleat on about stardom being this lonely, dark place, you know, I get to Gary get into full restaurants, I don't stand in queues, Marianne will t tell you in Soweto, I mean I, uh, you know, uh, people I, I have, a, there are a lot of pros but the cons are emotional ones um, and I think that one has to be incredibly rounded to, to cope with a lot of rejection, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of, a lot of stuff that's that hurts your soul. You know, just recently my school, for example, um, who are very proud to say that I went to Morristella Convent and very proud to say that I'm an old girl. I really wanted to do, like, much like Chad Leclerc wanted to, um, do a book launch at the school and the, and the, the headmistress of the day now, uh, you know, we were led by Bishop Hurley, who was fantastic, um, said no, that there was stuff in the book that wasn't suitable. And I must be perfectly honest, Marianne really got it and she said that must have been sore mm. and I said to her yeah it was sore and it still is I mean I'm not going to hang on to it for life but it is, a, it is sore mm. so you set yourself up for that kind of stuff yeah but hopefully the soreness will soon go because you've released so much here in this book PJ it's been absolutely it's been a real honour I saw you at the Friendship Book Festival and I saw you singing to a, a, an audience there and everybody just loved it so whatever the magic is it's it's survived all it's been wonderful thank you so much and very best of luck thank you very thank much you. And, and, the and thank you thanks Marianne I'll speak to you just now yeah and Marianne, okay. cheers, cheers, <laughs> Penelope. And Marianne, for you, I mean, it really, it, it, I'm not sure what you were expecting when you undertook to write this book. And you've written books, you've written books with a number of other mm. people. This one, I know you put on your Facebook page, yay, I've done it. Yeah. Was it, was it fun? Was it, uh, it was, was one it of the, It was one of the most um, um, uh, engaging and fun projects I've ever done and and I liked it for many many different reasons and particularly for I've made a friend and that and that's that's really interesting I mean there are many things and, and it's one doesn't want to insert oneself into something but I understood so much of that feeling um, I can understand what she's saying when she you know when, when Penn says the school said you can't come and sing I know those hurts I've, I've had them in other spaces myself uh, and and needing to understand that they've got the problem not me so so you know it, it, it's it was a project that also took me on a journey at the same time which is which uh, kind of that's what happens and here you are and it is a journey and it has been a journey just reading it so thank you very thank you, much thank you thanks. thank you Nancy. thanks you both lovely well if you'd like to lay your hands on that it's called here i am by pj powers with marianne tum and it's published by penguin so do get yourself a copy if you possibly can you're listening to sfm literature stay with us love is the way 
People think of poetry as if it's that school stuff, and it's so different now. Poetry is essential. I think that we can't live without poetry. Poetry is the language of the heart. It's what makes people able to communicate the most important things in our lives. It allows us to communicate at a really deep level. It creates an alphabet of human experience. Mm. It helps us hear each other better. Speak to each other. Yeah, exactly. Listen in to Poetry in the Air, running Monday through Thursday till the first week in September. SAFM, Poetry in the Air. to be hearing about poetry in the air here on SFM Literature. Well, what we have in the air right now, moving away quickly from heavy rock and all that can go with it, to the simple act of literacy, of reading, writing, calculating, communicating, or perhaps not such a simple act, because as our guest here says, and he's a Dr. Louis Benjamin, as he says, children are not born knowing how to read, write, and communicate. They need to be taught. They need to be shown how. Well, Dr. Benjamin is a cognitive educational consultant specializing in early childhood development, and he's also a board member of the Thinking Schools of South Africa. And I read with interest a piece that was published in the Cape Times just recently called Equip Kids with uh, the Tools to Read, Write, and Calculate. And lovely to have you with us, Dr. Benjamin. Thank thanks, you very much. Thanks, thanks much. Um, okay, where are we going to start here? I suppose, you know, these tools that we need to give our children, clearly, in, in, your, in your view, you are just straight mm -hmm. sure. um, In your view, we're not giving them these tools. What tools should we be giving them, and what are we giving them in their place? Great. I think there's a lot of background that uh, we need to give. I think, Firstly, we need to acknowledge, and I focus mostly on the 80% of kids who are coming into ordinary public schools who are not learning. 80% here in South Africa. In South Africa yeah. who are not learning. And uh, what preparedness or preparation they need for learning in order to equip them to learn when they enter grade one. It's as if we would open up the curriculum and or the new CAPS shiny curriculum and we'd insert them in the classroom and we'd begin with the first lesson and expect them to naturally start to learn almost as if it would be automatically without taking into consideration where children coming from is vastly different mm. and what would equip them to learn therefore would be very different what would make them ready for that precise moment when they open up the formal learning books and they would learn, we're making a lot of assumptions about that. So, yeah, that's yeah. some background. Yeah, yeah. early childhood development, as we hear again and again, it's, it's the key, isn't it? It's, it's no good waiting until they reach primary or secondary or whatever. If we don't get it right right at the beginning, it's never really going to get right, which is a worry. So how do we get it right? What well, do we give them? I think on the positive side, let's start there. And let's look at how far we've, 
we've come. We've got nearly 80% of children in the country in grade R currently, uh, and it's a dramatic improvement from 2002, where there were about 200,000 children, to about 800,000 children currently, which is wonderful. Mm. But we now are looking at what has happened and what that has contributed to the system um, in terms of improving the quality and the preparedness. And unfortunately, I think this is one of the reasons that I wrote the article with the publication of the research from RESEP at the University of Selenbosch. It was quite depressing to see that the children that need it most are making little to no gains. And the big warning bells should be ringing that we don't want to replicate the failures in the general education system that, uh, in grade R that we so desperately need to create this window for learning and pre preparation for learning and see that it's making none of the impacts where it's needed. The research from Stellenbosch University told us what? That was one of the, the key findings. Okay of the study is that the higher quintiles, the richer schools in other words, we see that children are responding in grade R, whereas in the poorer schools we oh, find okay. that they are not making yeah. the progress yeah. or little or no progress. Um, and that is the warning, uh, the warning bells that we now need to look at not just uh, making sure that we can provide the access to all children, which is very badly and desperately needed, because we know how critical it is. And maybe we can speak mm -hmm. a little bit more about why that is so, you know, in terms of the early childhood development yeah, and why, requirements why? and why that is so important. Mm. And why we can't take for granted, as I was saying right at the beginning, that children will merely learn. You know, I, I take my own personal experience and I look at my own children who are privileged and they go to a private school. And guess what? We're sitting there biting our nails to see whether our children are actually going to read and write and do numeracy or maths at school. Why? Because it's not an automatic natural yeah. process. It's something that we invest years and years of preparation from birth. We say literacy took 2,000 years, the alphabetic system to develop, and yet it's the first thing we want children to do. And yet it is such a complex, we need those 2,000 days, in fact, from birth to five years mm. old. We have to give intensive at attention every single day. Even missing one of those days might have a tremendous impact when we place the child in that formal learning context and we want to start with the first formal sure. lesson. No, yeah. no pressure. No pressure whatsoever. So, so in, those, in those 2,000 days then, what should we be doing as parents? Because I mean this is before they get to grade right. R, so what can we do as parents to make sure that they are where they should be right. when they get into grade R? In one of the introductions I think you said it exactly. It comes down to simple one of the simplest things is language and talking and communicating. In that process, there's a whole set of other psychosocial, emotional contexts that is happening with children. So not only to put it in the realm that it's literacy and it's devoid of everything else we do as human beings in communicating, establishing relationships, having eye contact, establishing gaze, that, that, that is all, you know, Im implicated in, in all of that. So from day one is starting discussions and dialogues and conversations with our children that we can extend and become more and more yeah, complex as, as they go along, using words that are not just everyday words or and making them a little bit more complex and challenging and that's the leading edge of where development should be mm. and yet we're finding children in very poor homes and and this will then be bonded onto books and formal 
literacy that we have around us. Yet children who come from poor homes have zero books on average. Children in middle middle, lower socioeconomic, maybe at two or three, whereas our children would be exposed to 2,000 books before they start school. Yeah, but it's not just about mm-hmm. books. I mean, books maybe mm-hmm. come later. I mean, I'm, exactly. I'm interested in the thing about mm-hmm. the, the language. And I mean, it doesn't exactly. mean that you have to have long political discussions yeah. with your sort not of 18-month-old, but you just need to be talking to them because there's a wonderful piece that you, yes. uh, a statistic that you quoted here in your piece, which is, um, that according to some research that was done back in 1995, that approximately children from poor homes, uh, I mean, I say poor in inverted commas, heard approximately 30 million fewer words than their peers in higher socio- socioeconomic backgrounds. So, I mean, this is not about money. It's it, This is about how many words get spoken yeah. in your household. It's incredibly low-tech yes, <laughs> and yeah. accessible to most. Yet we make a lot of assumptions in just saying that as well, because how you brought up and the communication patterns you establish is something that we also grow into and pass over from generation to generation. It's staggering. 30 million words is a universe, a whole new universe for children. Yet and we I want to point out that those yeah. are not 30 million different words. Um, it's just the quantity, the volume the of volume words that are Of language out. that is yeah. used on a daily basis, measured. Every, on an hourly basis of the frequency of words that are used between parents and children and actually it was measured highly highly accurately to up to the point where devices now that can measure language interactions so we can see the amount of language that has been used in homes and then help to make some kinds of interventions but I'm sure we'll get to that mm. point in the discussion so it's not just it's not just the, the quantity the quantity no. but it's not just the reading uh, it's the the four things are reading, writing, calculate, uh, yeah, calculating and communicating. Because it's not just about it's a, the the ability to communicate, which is ultimately what needs to yes. be fostered, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I think it's it's in the kinds of interactions we're having. We we open up our exchanges for reciprocity, where children are allowed to enter into a discussion and contribute towards you know that discussion and there are a lot of characteristics or hallmarks of and it's the kind of language and words we're using the kind of feedback that are encouraging instead of punitive or dismissive and these are things that a lot of us just take for granted yet these are often things that I see in my experience that we have to teach or train and help parents and teachers to understand how to engage children in these what seem like a naturally fluid, spontaneous discussion that you would see between a parent and a child um, ordinarily. And I suppose, to be fair, for a lot of parents, they might need to be taught that too. Because exactly. you do, I mean, we're all, when you become a first-time parent, you are a first-time parent with no handbook and you might be really um, echoing the way in which you've been parented yes. and some, maybe nobody particularly spoke to you either so you perhaps wouldn't feel that it was terribly necessary to be having long conversations with this mute little mute little soul who's been put in your care how do you how do you deal with that what, how do what do you say to parents I mean in your mm. role what do you do mm. to encourage people I think just new parents if you're speaking about that group of parents I, I find they actually do need a lot of encouragement and support to know that what they are doing is the right thing and they often are very uncertain because they are doing it for the first time and they're doing it on instinct a lot of the time as you say the environments where they came from might be quite different but yet there is a certain instinctive basis 
and not so far from those those parents or those children might have grown up in homes that are not ideal or optimum and might have been exposed to their friends parents or in school relationships so somewhere they might have been exposed to a little bit of what we're speaking about right now or wanting to become a better parent by the time they even get to that point mm. so yes i think those those parents also need and it's not to say that as you were saying earlier that it's only it's only children coming from poorer homes because you get wonderfully um, engaging parents. It's about the deprivation of language and stimulation that is happening to children that is often associated with those kind of environments. So you may yeah. not have money to shower your mm-hmm. children with, but you can shower them with words. This is a sort of slightly different tack, sure. but you've brought in the, uh, the basic concepts program, the mediator's manual, uh, metacognitive program for young children who experience learning difficulties in the foundation phase. Learning difficulties has become a sort of like a, a catchphrase of this century and increasing amounts of children have learning difficulties here in South Africa, but across the world, you know, maybe it's because it's mm. more recognized, but do we can we pinpoint some of these learning difficulties and the fact that these kids have just not been spoken to i mean is it as simple as that yeah i think it's something we have a very broad understanding of what contributes uh, to a barrier to learning as we put it in south african parts it's any child who either socioeconomically have some um difficulty in being able to learn adequately at school would be classified so we could see that we have an enormous population group of children that might fit into that category um and sorry your question yes i'm just going to ask you to yeah. hold that thought right. we've got to take a quick break we'll be right back we're talking about uh, teaching children to communicate early you're listening to SFM Literature here where we're busy chatting about uh, teaching children to, to read and communicate from a very, very early age, talking to Dr. Louis Benjamin. Um, Dr. Benjamin, we're pretty much out of time, but I'm if thinking if anybody would like to know a little bit more about what else they can do, uh, the Basic Concepts program seems to be the way to go. Is it a website? Yes, there's a website, and the website is basicconcepts.co.za, and they can find out more, and my contact details are there. Which would be presumably be very useful, um, certainly for parents, but also for, for grade R teachers. Absolutely. Grade R and foundation phase. We've been speaking about the enormous deficits that there are, gaps are, there are, which cannot be closed in a moment. But I, in, through the intervention program, look at a phase of looking at how we can develop the conceptual and cognitive tools that are required in that foundation phase that children can access learning the formal curriculum. The way they're going to access it best is if you just simply start talking to your child. Absolutely. There you go, Thanks right from much. the word go, Dr. Louis Benjamin. Basicconcepts.co.za if you'd like to find out more. Basicconcepts.co.za. You're listening to SFM Literature. It's two o'clock. It's time for the news.